There's another line in Joseph Hartzian that often appeals to me when he speaks about the gift of salvation. It was given to Mary, Manasseh, and me. That puts us all on a good level, doesn't it? Uh, now we're looking at Romans 8 again, and we have been considering the spirit of bondage, the spirit of adoption which cancels it out, and now we're going to have another bondage brought before us in verse 21. The creature itself also should be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So there is that thought still being pursued. There is something that grips mankind. There is a freedom that God has designed. And it is enjoyed now in spirit. We have the spirit of the adoption. And one day we're going to have literally the adoption itself, if you'll notice verse 23. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits of the Spirit are referring back to uh, verse 15, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry of our Father. We've got the spirit of adoption now. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for, not the spirit of adoption, but waiting for the adoption. And what is that? The redemption of our body. So we are redeemed now in spirit, but we're not yet in glory, we're not yet beyond the bondage of sin and death and corruption, but we're on the way, friends. Uh, We've got our faces turned to the sun rising, as it's put in the Old Testament. And although we are very conscious of our stumblings and many mistakes and failures, yet that blessed hope is before us. Let's get a few thoughts for our help, shall we? Last time we were here, he was balancing up, you remember, in verse 18. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. And the worthy to be compared word, I think I reminded you, is derived from a pair of balances. You put in the balances your sufferings, and you put in the balances the glory that's awaiting you. Well, you say, now, if you do that, I can't grumble so much as I I generally do. Because, look at the weight of glory. Remember how he puts it in another passage? The light affliction, he's put it in the scales, you see. And if the Apostle Paul could add up his lifetime of suffering, with all the things he went through, dying daily, he said, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And he put it in the scale, and he said, light affliction. But for a moment, see, worketh for me a far more eternal weight of glory. So here, it's not worthy to be compared with the glory that should be revealed in us. Now we go on to where where we left off. For the earnest expectation of the creature, and this refers to creation itself. I've got just one passage, I haven't got time in these meetings to supplement too far, but listen to this. The field is wasted, the land warneth. For the corn is wasted. The new wine is dried up. The oil languishes. That's just one verse. That's the consequence of departing from the living God. The creation was subjected to vanity, it says here. For the creature was made subject to vanity. Creation was subject to vanity. We may think of the word vanity as a fairly easygoing word. But when you think of the judgment of a man like Solomon, who had all the facilities of an eastern potentate at his disposal, 
He did his utmost to discover what was worth doing in this present life. And he looked at it all and he says, oh, what's the good of it all? He didn't know Hardy's pessimistic poem, but he would have echoed it. What's the good of it all? He said, it's surely better for a, to be a wise man than a fool, isn't it? Yes. And then when you said yes, he says, and how does a wise man die? Just like a fool. That's the word that brings in the word vanity. So before ever he writes his book, he puts the preface. The first verse is, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's the king, whose, whose glory was such that our Saviour himself could refer to it. Solomon in all his glory. Solomon in all his glory looked out on the world from the throne of ivory and gold and said, all is vanity. And the reason was it, the reason why was, he keeps on saying in that Ecclesiastes, one event's waiting for the king and for the peasant. One event's waiting for the wise or the fool. If a man lives 10,000 years twice told, he said, one event's waiting for it. There it is. You can't get away from it, friends. Now then, in the first of this chapter 8, the way in which God dealt with the, the, the um, law of the spirit of death, the sin and death, was to send his son. Send his son. Now, here's a very blessed thought. He's going to deliver us completely, and uh, as it says in the resurrection, by sending his son. But, it's his sons who are going to be manifested with him too. There's a share here. Will you look, uh, look how that goes on from here? Uh, first of all, I'll pick up where we left off. For verse 19, for the earnest expectation of creation, you can translate it like that if you will, waited, now it doesn't say waited for the coming of Christ, but it must be that of course, but look at this, waited for the manifestation or the revelation, the apocalypse, the very word used of Christ in the book of the Revelation, waiting for the apocalypse, the revelation of the sons of God. So the deliverance of the sons of God is a pledge of the deliverance of the groan of creation in the widest sense yet. So there's a share there. Because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption. In the Hebrews chapter 2 there was the bondage of the fear of death. And here we have the bondage of fear and the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty. That's a, that's a word that's waiting for us. Bondage now. Liberty then. Now it goes on to say these words. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And there's very few of us, I believe, perhaps not one of us, who hasn't sat back and wondered and had all sorts of thoughts chasing through the mind. Why should this world be so, as it were, dogged by suffering and trouble and groan the very nature itself seems to suddenly erupt. You get volcanoes, you get earthquakes, you get cyclones, and no discrimination, men, women, children, good, bad, and indifferent. Have you never had puzzles about it? I think you must have done. Well, he doesn't solve the puzzle here, but I think he gives you a little hint. Because he says, first of all, the groan is going on in the outside creation, but he says, don't you, don't you imagine you're going to be as it were, delivered from it just yet. And not only they, not only they, not the outside unsaved world, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves 
grown within ourselves. And you'll find that same idea of waiting for the glory that's the dawn. If you'll just take another glimpse at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I don't think I need to rub this in that we do have groans, do I? But it's stressed, you see. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. First few verses. For we know that if our earthly house, which is but a tent, I'm translating literally, were dissolved, taken down, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for in this we groan. Here it is. Earnestly desiring what? To be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. And he says it again, you see. So in Romans 8, we grow. In Romans 8, the whole creation grows. But all friends, I should be at remiss. I should be remiss. I looked at me watch and said, well, that's the end of that today. There's one more that's groaning, friends, and it makes all the difference. Will you run your eye down chapter 8 a, a little bit further than we'll get today? Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh groanings, intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Have you ever thought of the Spirit of God <coughs> groaning with unutterable groans? Have you? You see, the thought that is the blasting thought in the minds of some of God's people is God's indifferent. He's sitting up there on his throne in the heavens, and he's not very much concerned with all the trouble and that's going on down here. But that's not the truth of Scripture. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, it says. And here we have that the Spirit who's come to be the comforter for us in this present world is sharing the groan of creation. Now this lets a little light in but makes a tremendous big problem. Because there are some who say that God's quite untouchable by any sorrow, can never enter there. Yet it repented the Lord. It grieved him at his heart when he saw the wickedness that was on the earth in the days of Noah. And the thought that comes to us is this. That this bondage of corruption, the bondage of sin and death, brought in by Satan, is no mere trifle. Without speaking irreverently, I believe God is up against it. It's not merely that he can wave his hand and dismiss the whole thing. He didn't. He went to the greatest extreme of not sparing his own son in order to effect deliverance. And you can't believe God would have done that if there had been an easier way out. Never make a trifle of the enemy. If you could imagine a spiritual foe who could keep a world like this in his grip for 6,000 years and is spoken of in the New Testament as him who had the power of death, then you begin to say to yourself, God has got an enemy that we do well to respect. Not that we're going to in any sense trifle with him or worship him, but we never underestimate him. For when we see the cost of our redemption. But isn't it a comfort to know that even though we can't explain it all, uh, that um, when we are groaning, and when we hear the groan of creation, when we find we are sharing it with others, isn't it good to know that God himself says, and I'm with you, I don't want to take this too literally, but instead of being a God afar off, he's a God who's very near. And in the person of Christ, you remember the titles given to him, not merely that he bore our sins, but he was a man of sorrows, he was acquainted with grief, <laughs> the chastisement belonging to our peace was upon him, and so on. 
And so I felt that it might, might help us in this world to look these things in the face and not belittle them, but say, nevertheless, even though there's no explanation given to me, I could put my hand in his and walk through the wilderness of this world knowing there will be a justification of the whole matter one day. And even though it's not explained yet, I can trust him because I see what he has done by his mercy and his love to uh, uh, counter it. Uh, just one other word, let's look back again. The glorious liberty of the children of God. That's the opposite of the word bondage. So one day, the bondage is to be cancelled. We are like the children of Israel in Egypt. And many of the Israelite may have said, I wonder why we are here. We didn't ask to come here. They were there in Egypt, in bondage. And they had to be delivered by the blood of the Passover lamb and go back again. And Abraham was told that before ever he had any children. Before ever he had a, a, a nation descending from him. God said, oh yes, you've come out, you've, you've occupied the land of promise, but don't you put fences round and that. Oh no, there's another bit to be done yet. Your children are going down to another nation, they're going to suffer, and they're going to be brought back again. We said, what a strange idea for God to say, you've come out, you believe me, then you, the nation that's going to spring from you are going to suffer and come back again. Well, he said, that's the, that's the pattern of the ages, I can't explain it yet, that's what happened all the way through. So that while there are mysteries here that may be still waiting for solution, they're faced by God, and we are, he asks us to face it. So should we just once and refresh our memory by what it says before we shut down again? Um, for, the for the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. So there's hope, written across the whole thing from the book of Genesis onwards, in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And the adoption which we are waiting for includes the very redemption of our body. We have the first fruits now, we are waiting for the earnest in the days to come. May God give us grace to just take these few hints and not say, well, that's the end of that passage, say, my, it is a muddle, isn't it? But let's go back now and ponder it again, word for word, line for line, and I think we shall get some consolation uh, in this present veil of tears.